0: It's April 1984, and word on the street is there's a new one. It will be the fourth installment of the movie series that has now become a definitive part of the horror genre. Hopefully, the newest edition will up the ante even more. The first three movies have already become a big part of the Halloween season, both for movie watching and costume influence. Eventually, there's a release date and you and your friends have already bought your tickets. The previous movies scared the life out of you. Hopefully, the newest one will keep the franchise rolling. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dressed, consumed, and connected. And today, it's a look back on the horror movie franchise that dominated 1980s movie theaters. This is a story of Friday the 13th. A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Shining, Halloween, Child's Play, Hellraiser, The Thing, and The Evil Dead. There are an endless amount of classic 1980s horror films... But when it comes to the definitive 1980s horror franchise, Friday the 13th may best represent the 80s. This series was so prolific that, except for 1983 and 1987, there was a new Friday the 13th movie for every year of the decade. In this episode, we'll cover all the releases in the 80s, along with the impact and legacy of this genre-defining franchise. And it all starts with the original. In the first movie, which in the early writing stages was first called A Long Night at Camp Blood, we learn the story of young Jason Voorhees. Back in 1958, he unfortunately drowned at Camp Crystal Lake. The counselors who were supposed to be watching him then end up being murdered. We fast-forward to a few decades later. The camp is still running, but not without the ugly shadow cast over it. And we meet Annie, one of the new counselors at Camp Crystal Lake, and she's hitchhiking her way to her summer home. But this doesn't come without its warnings. She runs into a townie who refers to the camp as Camp Blood, and he warns her about the death curse. For Annie this death curse turns into reality, as after being chased through the woods, meets an untimely death, as do other counselors. Is Jason Voorhees the murderer back from the dead to seek revenge? Well, 43-year-old spoiler alert coming in, it's actually his mother committing the murders. She never wanted the camp to reopen after the death of her son, the memory of which still haunts her after two decades. Mrs. Voorhees hears the instructions of her son, but before she can cause more mayhem, she gets taken out by another counselor named Alice. At the end of the movie, Alice has a nightmare where she gets attacked by the rotting corpse of Jason Voorhees, which results in an attack scene that still scars me to this day. She swears it's not a dream, but the police have never found a body. Written by Victor Miller, directed by Sean Cunningham, and released by Paramount Pictures, the first installment of the legendary horror franchise was really the little movie that could. Featuring a young Kevin Bacon as Jack, Friday the 13th was the definition of a low-budget horror film, and it only cost around a half million dollars to produce. If it wasn't a hit, at least they didn't drop a ton of money on it. Filmed throughout New Jersey, the film is set to come out in May 1980, but there's a good chance it could get buried at the theaters. Because at this point in 1980, we were about to get hit with a few all-time classics, especially in the horror genre. Friday the 13th would have to contend with The Shining, which came out not long after. Also in May of that year, was a little movie called The Empire Strikes Back. Friday the 13th also had to deal with a good critical bashing by reviewers such as Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. They were not fans and felt that movies like Friday the 13th weren't following traditional horror tropes and were needlessly violent. Roger Ebert noted how we were now experiencing parts of the movie through the killer's eyes, and he said that, quote, it's almost as if the audience is being asked to identify with the attacker in these movies, unquote. This also led to a pretty infamous review by Gene Siskel in the Chicago Tribune. Siskel hated the movie so much that he not only spoiled the movie in his review, but actually included the full mailing address to the chairman of the board of Paramount so people could complain about the movie. If that wasn't bad enough, he even included the name of the small town and state that Betsy Palmer, the actress who played Mrs. Voorhees, lived in, so people could write and complain to her too. But despite this, audiences still snatched up tickets to see the newest slasher film in the horror genre. Despite criticisms that it was riding the coattails of Halloween and Michael Myers, audiences flocked to theaters. And despite the competition, Friday the 13th was a surprise hit. Trailers for the movie promised that, quote, you may only see it once, but that will be enough. It turns out a lot of people saw it at least once. Friday the 13th pulled in nearly $40 million at the domestic box office. Then it pulled in another $20 million at the international box office for a total of around $60 million overall. Adjust this for inflation and it's over $220 million. An astonishing result for a movie that only cost a half million dollars. The worldwide box office for Friday the 13th was 108 times more than the production cost. This little slasher film was a 1,200% return on investment. Friday the 13th also made $15 million more than The Shining, which, according to Box Office Mojo, cost around $19 million to make. But was this a fluke? Had the creators of Friday the 13th stumbled on a perfect, low-cost, high-return formula? Well, there was only one way to find out. Why should Friday the 13th, 1981, be any different? Because of the phenomenal success of Friday the 13th, a follow-up was inevitable. In part two, we jump ahead five years. Alice is still haunted by the night she killed Pamela Voorhees, and another spoiler alert, Jason Voorhees is still alive, and he goes after Alice. We all know the iconic hockey goalie mask used by Jason, but we never saw it in the first movie, or even in part two. Instead, we see him wearing a cloth mask. This time, Jason is not going after the camp counselors, but the counselors in training. Shout out to any CITs out there. The lore of Jason has also only grown, and he runs amok murdering people with anything he can get his hands on. Ginny is our hero in this edition, and she believes she has successfully defeated Jason Voorhees. Part 2 was a decent follow-up to the original and came out exactly a year later, in early May 1981. After the success of the first film, the budget was doubled. And even though it didn't hit the box office revenue of the first, still pulled in over $21 million, or about $70 million adjusted for inflation. Another pretty healthy return. But that doesn't mean it was critically adored or anything. Roger Ebert Give it a half-star review, calling it, quote, a cross between the mad slasher and a dead teenager genre. About two dozen movies a year feature a mad killer going berserk, and they're all about as bad as this one, unquote. But these clearly weren't movies to impress film critics. They were there to drive young people to theaters looking to be scared out of their wits. Friday the 13th, was quickly establishing itself as a true horror franchise. With the success of Part 2, a third installment was also inevitable. And that takes us to the summer of 1982. In Part 3, we finally see Jason Voorhees as we are familiar with in full hockey mask getup, giving a generation of kids the perfect and cheap Halloween costume option. But how did this very specific look come to be? Well, it was completely unintentional. According to Screen Rant, the 3D effects supervisor on the film was also a hockey fan. On one of the filming days, he happened to have some hockey gear with him, including an old-school Detroit Red Wings goalie mask, hence the red stripes on it. Keep those red stripes in mind for later. One day, they were doing a lighting test, and the 3D effects supervisor pulled out the mask as a way to test the light. Director Steven Miner instantly saw a unique opportunity and decided this would be the look for Jason. An old goalie mask really was perfect. It was a familiar item that became instantly unsettling when used in this horror context. Today, it's hard to look at one of those masks without thinking of Jason. In part three, we also move away from the camp location. We also meet Chris, who was once attacked by a masked figure. Jason keeps doing his murder thing and eventually confronts Chris, revealing his face. It was he who attacked her all those years ago. She eventually takes him out with a classic axe to the head. If you were around in the summer of 1982, and if you remember the release of this movie, you may also remember how it was offered in 3D. And not great 3D, mind you, but just as a way to enhance the third installment. This was the era of cheap 3D enhancement. You may also remember that the year after Friday the 13th, part three, we got the release of Jaws 3D, a movie my grandpa played for us on video a few years later, thinking the screen would naturally just project 3D images. For Part 3, the budget went up to over $2 million, and audiences continued to roll in. Friday the 13th Part 3 almost doubled the revenue of Part 2. According to Box Office Mojo, Part 3 made nearly $35 million in its first run, plus another $2 million in a re-release nine months later. This is nearly $120 million in today's money. Friday the 13th Part 3 is also notable because it was the first movie to knock E.T. out of the number one spot. The Spielberg Classic dominated the box office for 10 straight weeks until friday the 13th part three there was no stopping jason both on the screen and at the box office and that leads into the movie that is considered the very best of the entire franchise everything 80s will return after these messages There wasn't a Friday the 13th movie released in 1983, but it would be worth the wait because this takes us to what many believe, myself included, is the best installment of the entire franchise. Friday the 13th Part 4, The Final Chapter. Narrator's voice, it wouldn't be the final chapter, but this is still a pretty standout horror movie. After taking an axe to the head at the end of Part 3, Jason is taken to a morgue and he's not dead. And this time, we're back at Crystal Lake. In part four, we meet Trish and her younger brother, Tommy, played by a young Corey Feldman. Tommy loves horror-related things, including making and wearing his own frightening mask. Eventually, Jason makes his way to their house, but young Tommy is a student of the game and has learned everything about Jason Voorhees. He dives into the psychology of Jason as Tommy shaves his own head and covers his face in white powder. This is an attempt to appeal to Jason's memories of himself at that same age. This distracts Jason and Trish attacks him with his own machete, giving us a glimpse at how much more grotesque Jason's face has turned. They take out Jason, but at what cost? What has this done to young Tommy? Friday the 13th, Part 4 came out in April 1984 and made on a budget lower than Part 3. As usual, Roger Ebert hated it, but had to acknowledge the drawing power of this franchise. In his 1984 review, he called it quote, an immoral and reprehensible piece of trash that sold more tickets on its opening weekend than any other movie so far in 1984, unquote. That's a perfect sentence to describe the horror genre. There are a lot of people who don't like horror movies, but there is an audience for it and they vote with their wallets. Paramount didn't even allow any review clips to be used on television. Was this to generate hype for part four or keep it away from critics. Either way, Friday the 13th: The Final Chapter was another box office success, especially when you consider how little these films cost to make. Part 4 pulled in another 33 million dollars, nearly 100 million in today's money. At this point, a few Friday the 13th movies had cracked the top 20 highest-grossing movies of the year. But in 1984, one of the best years for classic movies in the entire 1980s. It had to compete with the likes of Ghostbusters, Gremlins, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Beverly Hills Cop, The Karate Kid, Police Academy, Footloose, Purple Rain, The Terminator, and Revenge of the Nerds, among many others. Part 4 finished at number 23 for highest grossing films for the year. But again, when you consider the budget-to-revenue blueprint, not a lot of movies could pull off what Friday the 13th had. And this takes us to Part 5, Friday the 13th, A New Beginning. Tagline, if Jason still haunts you, you're not alone. It turns out that young Tommy was scarred, and we catch up with him as an older teenager. Tommy struggles with the memory of what happened, and that takes him to Pinehurst, a center where he can work through his issues. A disagreement between two of the patients ends in the murder of one of those patients. Now, other patients and employees are getting murdered by someone in a hockey mask. Jason must be back. But eagle-eyed viewers and listeners to this episode know that Jason Voorhees wears a hockey mask with red stripes on it as it was a Detroit Red Wings mask. The killer is wearing one with blue stripes. It turns out this fake Jason was a paramedic and the father of the first murder victim. Released in March, 1985, Part 5 was a bit of a drop off from the final chapter. It was a big change in direction plot wise, but over the years it's become more embraced as an old time 80s slasher film. Despite only having a 4.7 out of 10 rating on IMDb, audiences kept coming. Revenue dropped off quite a bit, down to about 22 million on a budget of around 2.2. This dropped it way down the list to the 42nd highest grossing film of 1985, one spot behind the Care Bears movie. However, it beat out number 43 by about $600,000, and the 43rd highest grossing film of 1985 is one I have a previous episode all about, the disaster for Disney called The Black Cauldron. Despite this being a lower success financially for the Friday the 13th franchise, it did beat out its main 1980s horror competitor, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge, by about $800,000. But we're only at the halfway point of the decade. There's still more Jason to come. In Friday the 13th, Part 6, called Jason Lives, we catch back up with Tommy. He has taken a friend to Crystal Lake to visit the grave of Jason. They attempt to dig him up, find his corpse, and drive a metal rod through it to finish him off once and for all. But lightning hits the rod, bringing Jason back to life. Jason kills Tommy's friend while Tommy makes a run for it. No one believes Tommy except for the sheriff's daughter, who intends to help him out. Meanwhile, Jason goes back to where it all began Camp Crystal Lake. Jason terrorizes the young kids, but doesn't hurt any of them. But if you're an adult or teenager, different story. Jason takes out several of them, but fortunately, Tommy has made it. In a battle with Jason, Tommy manages to wrap him in chains drowning him in the lake. That appears to be the end of Jason. Released in the summer of 1986, Part 6 felt like a step up from Part 5. With its Frankenstein-like beginning, Jason Lives is pure slasher absurdity. Some of the violence was also dialed up a bit, and there are some alternate versions that have some more graphic scenes. Returning to Crystal Lake and Camp Crystal Lake was also notable as the camp always felt like it was its own character, sort of like the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. Friday the 13th Part 6 might have benefited from an earlier or later release as the summer of 1986 may be the best summer for movies in the 80s. Also coming out that summer were Stand By Me, Aliens, The Fly, The Transformers the movie, The Karate Kid Part 2, Back to School, The Color Purple, Barris Bueller's Day Off, Flight of the Navigator, Howard the Duck, which was expected to be a huge hit, and the biggest movie of 1986 that was already out, Top Gun. And September would also see the release of another huge hit, Crocodile Dundee. On a higher budget of about $3 million, Jason Lives still made another $20 million. but it could have done quite a bit better if it had an earlier or later release date. But there was no reason to stop this freight train anytime soon. We take 1987 off, but in 1988, we're back. Obviously, Jason Lives was not the end of Jason, And that takes us to Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood. This time, we are warned that on Friday the 13th, Jason is back. But this time, someone's waiting. And that someone is a new character. The young Tina Shepard. Tina has telekinesis, which accidentally causes the death of her father, also at Crystal Lake. People should have steered clear of that place. This obviously traumatizes her, but as an adult, she goes back to the lake to confront her fears. But while she's there, she senses something. It's Jason, and he's managed to not only survive, but break free of the chains that took him to the bottom of the lake. And he goes on yet another rampage. Jason continues to take out people at the lake, and this leads to a final confrontation between Jason and Tina. Going into full 11 mode, Tina fights Jason with her mind by throwing couches at him through telekinesis. Jason's mask comes off again, revealing increased disfigurement. But all is not lost, as the ghost of Tina's father comes to the rescue once again, taking Jason back down to the bottom of the lake for good. Released in May 1988, Friday the 13th Part 7 found the same success as Jason Lives, with pretty much the same budget and same box office revenue of around $20 million, or about $52 million in today's money. It wasn't making Top Gun money, but audiences were sticking with the franchise, and consistently so. Considering these are R-rated horror movies that severely limits the audience, the films continued to be a financial success. At this point in the Friday the 13th legacy, it was an if-it's-not-broke-don't-fix-it situation. But Part 7 is interesting in the Friday the 13th lore. There is an uncensored original edit that no one has ever seen. According to Screen Rant, the original version was so violent and graphic that the Motion Picture Association of America forced the director to cut most of the carnage out. The Friday the 13th movies have been subject to some MPAA regulations before, but this was apparently a big one, as Part 7 was supposedly excessively gory, even by Friday the 13th standards. There was reportedly some old grainy VHS transfers of it for a little while, but not much else out there. And back in the 90s, Paramount is said to have destroyed the old footage. But there's one more year to go, and to close out the decade, we have Friday the 13th, Part 8, The Muppets Take Manhattan. I mean, Jason Takes Manhattan. The movie starts out on a cruise ship, where graduates from Crystal Lake are all on their way to Manhattan. What happened to Jason, you ask? Well, at the bottom of the lake, another boat's anchor has snagged some wires that electroshock Jason back to life. He makes his way aboard the cruise ship and goes on his usual rampage. But a few passengers make a bolt for it, taking a raft to Manhattan. Jason follows them and is now loose in New York City. The movie culminates with Jason facing off against one of the passengers deep in the New York sewer system. Without any help from the Ninja Turtles, she dumps toxic waste onto Jason, and then he's overwhelmed with more of it in the sewer. And that appears to be the end of Jason, at least in the 1980s. Friday the 13th, Part 8 came out in the summer of 1989, which was another huge risk, because if you remember the summer of 89, it may be the biggest and best summer for movies, for not just the 80s, but in the history of film. That summer, we had Batman, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Lethal Weapon 2, Honey I Shrunk the Kids, Ghostbusters 2, Dead Poet Society, Parenthood, When Harry Met Sally, Turner and Hooch, Uncle Buck, The Abyss, Star Trek V. The Karate Kid Part 3, License to Kill, Weekend at Bernie's, and Do the Right Thing. It also had my favorite movie ever, UHF. 1989 was also a huge time for horror films, and Jason Takes Manhattan was up against A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, Fright Night Part 2, and in a few months, Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers. But once again, and even though it was quite a bit less, Friday the 13th, Jason Takes Manhattan made some money. The setting of this film increased the budget to just over $5 million. And despite the massive competition, Part 8 brought in around $14 million. Not amazing, but if you consider how there were fewer screens back then, and an R-rated horror film got even fewer screenings when everyone wanted to see Batman or The Last Crusade, It's amazing it made money. And that's the essence of this franchise. The movies were cheap to make, people still went to see them, and even if they didn't make the money of earlier editions, they were still profitable. So that was the end of the movies in the 80s. But Friday the 13th, it also made it into our homes. The success of the Friday the 13th movie franchise in the 80s led to the TV spinoff Friday the 13th, the series. Louis Vandredi made a deal with the devil to sell cursed antiques, but he broke the pact, and it him his soul. Now his niece Mickey and her cousin Ryan have inherited the store, and with it, the curse... Released in October 1987, just in time for Halloween, the series lays out the entire premise in the intro. Two cousins inherit an antique store that sells antiques that happen to be cursed. And the two have to track them down to store them safely at the store. Despite no connections to Jason Voorhees, it's a pretty decent horror series, considering the limitations for a syndicated TV show. The first season had a whopping 26 episodes, as did season 2, back in the good old days before 8 episodes is now considered a full season. In The Impressive Thing, Friday the 13th the series was nominated for two Emmy Awards for special visual effects and graphic design. The series lasted for three seasons with a total of 72 episodes, According to IMDb, there was a report that one of the final items that needed to be retrieved in the series finale was Jason's hockey mask. But there was never any serious intentions to tie the film series to the TV series. As prolific as the Friday the 13th series was in the 80s, it kept going. In 1993, we got Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday. It wasn't the final Friday because in 2002, we got Jason X. And then Jason teaming up with his old pal, Freddy Krueger, in 2003's Jason vs. Freddy. And then six years after that, there was a return to the classic franchise with a movie simply entitled Friday the 13th. A movie Roger Ebert actually reviewed after pretty much not watching any more of them after Friday the 13th Part 4 in 1985. He gave it two stars. The scientific term for fear of Friday the 13th is called periskevidekatriaphobia. That took me like eight takes to get. The date does scare some people, and the movies scared millions. So what's the legacy of Friday the 13th? It wasn't the first slasher film, but seemed to capture this genre better than most, at least from a commercial success aspect. Friday the 13th gave us one of the most iconic horror villains of all time with Jason. With just a hockey mask and a machete, the look of the character was simple but iconic. Jason was like Darth Vader in his relentless pursuit and destruction. Along with Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers, they make up the big three of classic 1980s horror movie characters. Friday the 13th felt like it created a blueprint that influenced a generation of films that followed it. The movies and Jason costumes are also significant parts of Halloween each year. If you go to a haunted house attraction, there's a good chance you may see someone in a hockey mask with a machete. The movies weren't loved by everyone. A lot of people absolutely hated them. But they had a devoted audience and a long-lasting legacy. And that makes Friday the 13th an absolutely definitive part of the 1980s. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you've come this far, maybe you're willing to go a little further by diving back into my earlier episodes. There's a ton there to keep you going. You remember the name of the show, don't you? The Everything 80s Podcast, available wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll keep an eye out for you and the chessboard ready. And if you're looking for bonus 80s audio content, you can check out patreon.com. That's the platform to support the show and get access to things like the Everything 80s Movie Review Podcast. And there are a few reviews there of movies that I mentioned in this episode, including A Nightmare on Elm Street, Weekend at Bernie's, and UHF. If you want to check that out, you can just head on over to Patreon.com/slash80s. So that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/slash80s. So that's it for me. Again, thank you for listening. I'm Jamie. This has been Everything Eighties, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.